0: Got no time for no petty germs, pandemic, a pandemic turn. Horror's still in Amityville, bayonet in Gettysburg. Mothman, TNT, factory, red eyes, low beam. Dog man, howling in the street. I'm typically skeptical of what I see. Voodoo, hoodoo in New Orleans. Thunderbird, Swamp Thing. Is it real? I was wondering.
1: Typical. Skeptic. Show. Typical. Skeptic. Show. When I hit my intro, and then uh, we should be. I think we're live now. And then my uh, intro, we'll real quick. Episode of the Typical Skeptic Podcast. I have with me today one of the most fascinating researchers. I would say of our time. I I put him up there with people like. That I looked up to like Gerald Clark and Matthew LaCroix and he's even like he's, he's gone to another level with his research on the Anunnaki on simulation theory um he's just done amazing work and who I'm talking about is Jason Brashears of Archaics Jason's channel has skyrocketed in the past couple months and it's it's so deserving for the things that he's uncovered about he's a chronologist so he's uncovered our true history our true chronology of like what happened in the past Um, you know, at first, like when I first got into this stuff, I was, I was into Zachariah Sitchin, but then I found out about other translators, which we're going to talk about tonight, like George Smith and Austin Henry Laird and Samuel Noah Kramer. And I learned this from, from watching Jason's stuff too. You know, um, I wanted to show you, Jason, by the way, I have a copy of George Smith's, uh. Chaldean Account of the Deluge. This is my oldest. It's a, it's a bad copy, but you know, but uh, a little bit more about my guest. Jason Brashears has offered 17 books and a massive chronological timeline of world history demonstrating that we exist inside a mathematical construct he calls the Simulacrum. His findings, data sets, and research can be found on his website, archaics.com. He has revealed in many of his 330 videos on YouTube and other platforms, that more and more evidence that we are in a unique situation experiencing two different realities at the same time, the collective and the personal, that many of us may live in the same world, but we are not in the same universe. And his again, his website is archaics.com, and uh, I want to give him a big, warm welcome to the show. Jason, thank you for joining me. How are you?
0: Man, I'm, I'm, I'm great. I'm great. Had a busy day. Uh, as busy as you can be just staying at home, going through books and I've been I've been researching all day long and I looked at my emails and I saw your email. I was like, oh, holy crap. I looked on my calendar and all day yesterday, all day yesterday. I remembered I got to go on with typical skeptic tomorrow, tomorrow. But I never looked at the time. I just assumed it was going to be in the evening. So I'm so glad by when I looked at my emails, I realized, oh, wow, I still got another hour it's good.
1: Yeah. Um I what I, what I did to prepare for this is I kind of just binged your channel cuz I get so many different guests. It's hard for me to stick to one channel, but then I was able to really catch up on a lot of your stuff. Like um but what what I wanted to start off with is this is like I don't know, I think I heard you talk about this once and I, it's really interesting. Like you know I, I study all different kinds of phenomena on this channel and um you had a near death experience. And the reason why I'm bringing this up is because when you, when you had your near death experience, you said that you experienced like w- what would have been the simulation or you saw the simulation. I was and we were going to talk about that tonight. So I was wondering if you could get into that a little bit. Like wh- what, exactly did you remember seeing? If you, if you don't mind,
0: like, well, uh, I never, I've never described anything that I saw. It was what I felt. It was a, uh, and my, my, my NDE is what other people are calling it. It's uh it's not something, it's not any way that I describe it. was a motorcycle accident. And although my body was tore up and rebar went right through my arm and tore my tattoos out to where you can see, I'm missing all this, this ink right here is missing with the rebar came out. I didn't feel any of that. I was in shock. Uh, I landed upside down on a concrete pylon after flying about 65 feet through the air. And, uh, my my shirt was missing it was in a barbed wire fence i didn't i didn't even know that though i was just walking around talking to people and the euphoria i felt and how and how my conversations people were so interesting to me all had all i had done at that time was release one single youtube video it's still up it's my very first video but um <coughs> excuse me uh, that video was going showed that my channel was about to go in a different direction it was more of a materialist perspective but yeah I I had uh I actually felt probably what I who I truly am and I was detached from my avatar although it was still obeying me I couldn't feel it uh I felt euphoria and every single thing people said was just fascinating to me I remember understanding everything they said and understanding it not just from my perspective but from their perspective as, as well it was like it was like empathy 2.0 it was the ability to to under it was the ability to experience what other people were conveying to me as they were conveying it not as the listener but as the conveyance very it's very hard for me to, to describe that right now because this isn't the type of world we live in but imagine a world where two different intelligences can approach each other and they can share and there can be an exchange of information and you feel you don't just understand you don't you don't just comprehend what somebody's telling you but you feel it as if it's an experience their words it's it's hard for me to convey but this is what i what happened to me and every time people came up and talked to me i was feeling what they what they were telling me not just intellectually understanding it and uh it's like an immersion of two spirits and what the information we're exchanging is beyond the ability of of our vocabularies to communicate so this is what happened to me and it was a very short period of time and I woke up in the ambulance, and I had a very lucid conversation with, with somebody who was taking care of me in the ambulance. And uh, I knew exactly, exactly how many minutes that I had been out. I had passed out. And uh, she had documented that and told that to the ER. I went to the ER. I stayed in the ER for a while, where they patched me up. And then for about 40 days, I laid in bed because most of my damage, damage to my body was cosmetic on the outside. I had no broken bones. But the problem was was the impact. It was a body impact upside down on a concrete pillar. And when I hit all my internal organs, the inertia kept my internal organs going toward the concrete pillar, even though my body had stopped. So all my internal organs were sloshed, stretched out from each other, and it took a long time for my lungs to heal. My, my, it just, we, it's weird. All my guts just kept going, even though they were still in my body. And my, the, the little sat, my, the little, the little tiny hundreds of thousands of little cilia that attach the outside of your lung sacs to the inside of your rib cage, the membrane on the inside of your rib cage, my, 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 my lung sacs had become detached. So even drawing a little bit of breath was a real struggle. It hurt. So for 40 days, I was, I was bedridden. I couldn't even move. It's I was I was out of there. But during that time, my whole my whole perspective had changed. It changed so, so much that my very second YouTube video was one year later. And anybody can see the timestamps on my video. My second video was a year after my first. And it was my first simulation theory video. I had went, During that year, I, I had processed all this information. All my research now made sense. I understood what direction it needed to go in. And that's when I started releasing the archaics data as showing that the historical record is a construct. And, and by, by, by this analysis, we can, here is another thread of evidence independent of physics that we can show that we live in a construct.
1: I, I, I would agree. It, it all seems like it, right? I mean, it, it's, it's what resonates with me when I say, do we live in some kind of simulation? It really feels that way. What I wanted to ask you, though, I thought this was really interesting. From digging into your channel, I noticed that you there's three. I know you cover a lot of stuff like you get into the elites and all, all kinds of stuff. But one, three things that you're really specialist in is the Anuna or the Anunnaki, the Simulacrum or the Simulation and the Phoenix phenomenon, which I kind of wanted to get into all of them tonight. But what I wanted to ask you, I don't know if anybody's asked you this before, was they're all connected in a way, right? They all intertwine in a way. Is that Am I correct? Yeah, all
0: throughout history, there are threads of connection. There's no doubt. There's uh, we're, we I see the commonalities everywhere, but it's not easy to disclose them. It's because the, this information has been revealed to the public in the past 30 and 40 years piecemeal. And not only piecemeal, but by authors who really didn't know what they were talking about. And then the concepts were popularized by other people who came behind them, who aren't really authors and researchers. What they did was take other people's data and created whole social, social. Uh, I don't. I, I guess they 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 puffed themselves up as some great social. Uh, I don't even know what to call it. A pundit, uh, just. A social figure who everybody believes is an expert in a certain topic this is what this is what happened with andronaki there are people today who have made their fortunes off the misinformation that zechariah sitchin has you know has published and a lot of a lot of the sitchinites have come to my channel a bunch of them have seen they've seen the chronological material and they agree with me they see all just like my, my my latest video yesterday that i put out was it was on an old text that I have never read before, three hundred and one year old text, and yet all this material that I've been releasing to the archaics community, showing them about calendars, vapor canopy, giant, showing about all this material about lunar. The lunar system was before the patriarchal takeover when they when they implemented the hero that went through the zodiac, which was a which was a basically an anti-goddess, anti-matriarchal uh, way of keeping time, venerating the sun and venerating the male over the female, so. All this was in this book, every bit of it, but this book came very late. This book was nothing but a validation. It wasn't a part of the original core data that I've been revealing. So, uh, I mean, even intricate information, stuff that completely smashes the entire Zechariah Sitchin paradigm, such as this book, the book, this 301 year old book specifically cites five different sources showing that the ancient world did not factor. These time periods of the gods and kingdoms in years, they did it in months. And to find that in this book, after I've already been citing Strabo and Diodorus Siculus, and especially the scholar Eudoxus, who is a critic of Plato, those were my three sources for this. And then to find this 301-year-old book that has five more sources, yeah, those are the nails on the coffin. Sitchinism is dead.
1: I, I agree. And and I, I, even when I interviewed Matt LaCroix recently, he told me that he he made it a point that he said he had to go outside of Sitchin for translations. And it was Gerald Clark who I first heard out about George Smith. And I was going to ask you, what are your thoughts on George Smith and the Chaldean account of the Genesis? Like, And do you follow other Assyriologists like that, like George Smith, Samuel Noah yeah. Kramer? Hey, that's a good question. That's not one
0: I've really been asked before. So listen, George Smith is the beginning. He's the trailblazer. He's the very first one. And what makes it really interesting is George Smith. When when the Assyrian when over a hundred thousand Assyrian cuneiform tablets were found in 1850. There was nobody translating them. They were just cataloging them. This is why, for the next century, newer and newer Sumerian and Akkadian cuneiform tablets were, were surfacing. Not because archaeologists were finding them, but because they have been stuck in the Oxford and the Bodleian Library basements for years, nobody knowing how to translate. George Smith was self-educated. He was not a member of the Royal, Royal Society. This man had a passion for knowing the for wanting to know the truth. He was a true maverick. He was learning just because he wanted to know. So he trained himself. Scholars later, scholars later, basically, oh, here's how censorship in academia works. They're not going to lie and say that, now George Smith wasn't a trailblazer. George Smith didn't begin the, 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 uh, the uh, translation of cuneiform and translating all this. George Smith didn't make all these discoveries. They're never going to do that. What academia does is is censorship by omission. They just never mention him. He's a pariah in the in the academic community. But he started it all. But there are but there are many who did recognize. Smith's greatness and his contributions, and one of those is a scholar very, very few people ever mention, but this man had his finger on the pulse of the ancient world's documents. I'm not talking about layered, and I'm not talking about breasted, and I'm not talking about uh, um, Samuel Noah Kramer. These men are all known, and their translations are good too. I am talking about Albert T. Clay, He is a phenomenon. His books are still around. They're very old. He wrote books in the 1910s, 20s, 30s, 40s. But uh, Albert T. Clay was releasing materials showing not only all these ancient translations that that were revealing what was happening in the ancient world, but he was revealing details in in the Amorite syllabaries. He was going into exquisite details showing that, listen, a lot of these a lot of these stories from the Bible, here's where they came from. And this is what made Albert T. Clay very unpopular because back then they didn't want to hear the you gotta understand Christianity was strong in 1910, 1920, 1930, 1940. They don't they didn't want to hear this, this this scholar putting out this material that the Bible isn't an original composition that these stories came from these tablets. These Karsag tablets right here are where we got this story. The keto tablets over here are where we got Genesis chapter 14 and the Karsag is is the flood and the, uh, uh, I mean, the Karsag is the Tower of Babel. And then no one wanted to hear that the Epic of Gilgamesh is the template, the origin to the story of Nimrod in the Bible, the mighty hunter before the Lord. Nobody wanted to hear that stuff. Nobody wanted to hear that the the, the reason there are two genealogies in Genesis, a seven patriarch genealogy that starts with Adam and, and goes through the Canite lineage and then a Sethite lineage of 10 patriarchs till the great flood. This is just a Jewish redaction of older Babylonian Akkadian text. Albert T. Clay is very specific. He shows the oldest records in the world were very specific. Before the flood, there were two competing dynasties. One of those dynasties was the dynasty of the seven kings. The other one was a ten king dynasty. And this is where we get the ten kings of Atlantis, the ten Petris, uh, the ten Rahamishis, all these, all these ancient legends and traditions all remember these two different dynasties in different ways. And, uh, I have a book called The uh, Return of the Fallen Ones, where I go through and itemize as many of the of the of the uh, historical citations that I could find concerning these dynasties of seven kings and dynasties of ten kings. All of them, both of them were pre-cataclysm. But Albert T. Clay did that. Albert T. Clay's material, he goes through the book of Genesis like an investigator and shows using old Amorite, Babylonian and Aramaic lexicons and shows you where the Hebrews got all these words and concepts and basically how Hebrew was developed out of the older Babylonian and Aramaic languages. And it wasn't exclusive and it wasn't special. So yeah, Albert T. Clay was he's my hero. Albert T. Clay is uh in four higher doll. Yeah, Sam, you already mentioned Samuel Noah Kramer. There are other ones like Marine Gallery Kovacs. When it comes to Sumerian Akkadian, and old Assyrian cuneiform, everybody but Zechariah Sitchin should be should be consulted.
1: I, I have a, I have a couple of questions uh, to, to feed off of what you said. Now, when you're referring to the Singing Seven Kings, are you referring to the is that like the Samaritan Kings list as well? And then also, well, for the people that don't know, um, what you're referring to with with the the, the Babylonian the, the Bible being copied from the Babylonian texts. If I'm right about this, the Jews were held captive in Babylon, correct? And that's where they got a lot of that information. And then yeah, I'll let you riff off that. Oh, that's
0: that's exactly. I mean, that's not that's not. That's not even original information. That's not even data coming from me. It just seems to be I'm, I'm one of the only people in the world that are that is revealing this, but that I know of. I'm pretty sure there are others, but this is widely known. I mean, it was widely known in all the collegiate sources prior to World War II that... Nothing in the Old Testament was ever reported till the 4th century B.C. There are no Hebrews named Moses. There are none of that until after the 4th. When the Jews came back from Babylon, all of a sudden they had this massive collection of writings, and it was all Hebraicized. But the writings concerned things that are very widely known in scholarship today that are not Hebraic. We have Davidu, the giant slaver and slayer in the Canaanite text. We have Suleiman in ancient Iran and Elam. It was a very popular title of a ruler. These were rewritten as Hebrew kings, David and Solomon. We have, we have all kinds of stories, like Moses being on a basket put in a river and all that. We already know where that came from. 600 years before, before Moses ever lived, we have Sargon of Akkad, Put in a little wicker basket and placed on a river and then basically left up to fate. His parents put him on the river and he floated down the river. And it just so happened that an Initu priestess found the basket, pulled him in. And this is why Sargon so often claimed in his boastings that I am Sargon of Akkad the Great. I have no father and no mother. He wanted to. He, it's a, it's an ancient way of saying I have no beginning and no ending, and uh, it was a, a, a claim of divinity or being born from divinity. This is where the Moses template come from, the uh, the uh, the law the the tables of the law and the lawgiver. We have the whole story in Ernemu, Ernemu of the ancient Near East is is was the lawgiver. He had the tables of stone. All these stories were put together and put into a beautiful, awesome narrative. They were done mixed in with a bunch of Phoenician histories that, the, that the, uh, the Hebrews had access to. So they basically used the template over, this is how it, how it was done. They took real historical dynasties and real historical events. But what they did is they injected themselves into the narrative as if they were major participants through, through all these threads of history, and they weren't. And proof of this is that no one in the world had ever heard of any of these stories in the Old Testament, or no one even knew who the Jews or the Hebrews were. It's such an insignificant, small, small nation. And in all the rosters of all the major trade routes and cities of the ancient world, and we have hundreds, Jerusalem is hardly ever mentioned Ever. It was never a, a major city. Archaeologists have never found anything of significance other than the old Bronze Age cities that dot the whole landscape. It's just like the thousands of other Near Eastern cities that have been found, but it's nowhere near as, as amazing as Kadesh. As Mari and Mitanni. It's nowhere near like Babylon, Nineveh. It's like Nimrud. It is nothing like the metropolises of Ugarit and Rashamra and Hattusis. And it's nothing like old An, which is called uh, Anu. You know it of, of, as the Greek Heliopolis in Northern Egypt, Lower Egypt. So, I mean, Jerusalem was nothing ever. We have this, we have this people who Studied all these histories and then brought them back. And you have to understand, this isn't me telling you this. This is me conveying to you what most of scholarship was publishing in 1880 to, to World War II. Albert T. Albert T. Clay goes off on all of this history and explains every bit of it. And it's only after World War II that this starts. This starts getting scrubbed, and it's because who owns all the publishing companies now? They don't want this information out there, but. Archaeology has never been able to to find any evidence of the Jewish participation in these historical events before the 5th century BC. And a really clever way of taking care of this problem is a story that was put in the Bible itself. And this is the story we find in two books that are put in the wrong place in the Old Testament. These are Ezra and Nehemiah. These two books explain how a Persian politician and a Jewish priest got together and and decided to introduce the Old Testament scriptures, the Torah, to the Jews that had come back from captivity. They They concocted a story, yes, that the entire Old Testament had been lost. That's why you guys don't know it. That's why you've never heard of Moses and the law. That's why you didn't know that for a thousand years people all over the world came and gave all their money and tithes and goats and and, 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 and all this wealth to the temple in Jerusalem. They invented all this using the materials that they took from Babylon and they concocted this whole thing. This is why the book of first and second Esdras was removed from the canon because much more detail about this invention is in in these books first and second Esdras is the Greek Ezra but in our old in our old testaments we have the story of Nehemiah and in Ezra and I have I have a trilogy of videos called the Great Deceit where I show all the verses in the Bible that prove that Ezra and Nehemiah were written way after all these events and all the conjunctions and prepositional phrases and all the little fragments, little colloquials that are found spread throughout the Old Testament were purposely put in Ezra and Nehemiah to make readers believe that they were, that they are actually referencing old texts and that these texts are very ancient when they're not. The whole story concocted in the Old Testament was that the law and the prophets were lost. And no one had access to these writings. They had been 100% forgotten by the people. And because of this, for 700 years, the people were worshiping the brazen serpent that had been put in the temple uh, of, of Jerusalem. This is mentioned in the Bible. I'm not making this up. I even cite the verses. For 700 years, the Hebrews worshiped the brazen serpent because they had forgot the law. And, and ever since the days of the Egyptian invasion, the, uh, uh, and when the Egyptians took all the records, this is what they made up. When the Egyptians took all, their, all the records, they haven't had a copy of the Torah anymore. So they invented a story that in the days of King Josiah, a piece of a wall fell down and amazingly, a copy of the Torah was found inside the wall. And that's why how King Josiah brought the people back up back under Yahweh and continued the old worship. But what's really interesting, this was 619 BC, according to their narrative. However, by 583 BC, the law and the prophets had been lost again and because they had been lost again inexplicably no one knows why now according to second first and second esdras Ezra went into the wilderness for 40 days with a pen and a scroll And he begged God to give him the Holy Scriptures. And angels appeared and dictated the entire Old Testament for Ezra to write down. And and he brought it to the people. And this is how they actually introduced the Torah and the prophets to the Jews who have absolutely no historical memory of ever knowing anything about this stuff. It was all invented, every bit of it.
1: That's amazing. Now what I wanted to ask you is who do you think Yahweh was because I know people have drawn conclusions that he might have been Enlil and then I think I heard I thought I heard you say this is where we can draw into the simulation a little bit or the simulacrum because I think you said that you thought that the the not the benefactor I know you said the benefactor is Enki and I'd love for you to explain that but you said that maybe this Satan figure or that that might also be Yahweh could have been like Yaldabaoth or Enlil did you draw those conclusions or am I off a little bit? Okay. I can speculate. I mean, I can
0: speculate based off what the scriptures tell me. The scriptures tell me that, that the creator is a loving God and that the creator is a provider and that we're supposed to develop a relationship with the creator. However, the same scriptures, but a different book, all of a sudden tells me that God manifested in the form of a burning bush. And in that form of a burning bush began to lay down the law, but it wasn't a loving law. It was a bunch of promises of vengeance. If you do not obey or fear me. So the God of Genesis doesn't seem to be anything like the God of Exodus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Leviticus, all that. Was it, was it Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy? I'm missing a book, but, uh, Yeah, this is a totally different narrative. It's a totally different deity. But what it does is elevate the Levitical priests over the Israelite, the Aaronic uh, priesthood. From the very beginning of Judaism, there has always been an animosity against Israelites. The first four battles in the Old Testament that, that the Jews fought were against the Israelites. Yahweh was a God that had promised the, 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 uh, the, the Judahites and the Levites great wealth. They're going to they're gonna, they're gonna take over the world. They're going to take over the cities of their enemies. They're going to be able to divide the spoils. They're going to be able to, their children are going to prosper. They're going to have all the wealth they want. All they have to do is fear him and obey him but the israelites rebelled against this they were not on board so he so he had about 40,000 of them impaled they still rebelled so he buried some of them alive they still rebelled they were not going they did not recognize the deity of the burning bush god they, this this foreign god that was being pushed on them was not recognizable to them so uh the israelites had a, had a, a totally different faith than the earlier judahites and I don't really know the associations travel over a thousand years. Like people automatically jump back to Enlil. This is Sitchinite thinking okay Okay. the the sumerians had their own pantheon they had their own pantheon and we know by virtue of some of the traditions who played what roles but to say enlil is yahweh or enlil is the is brahma or the i don't know because this is like cross-contamination between belief systems i don't really know and i don't like to i don't really like to speculate now, I can speculate about Enki, and the reason I can do that is because it seems to be his traditions were copied by the Jews much later when they, when they pushed out different rabbinical works like the Book of First Enoch. Well, that's a lie, really. I need, I need to retract that. The Book of Enoch is of late provenance, all right? It's originally an amalgamation of text. One of them is called the Book of Giants. Another one is called the Book of Noah. Another one, a scroll, independent scroll now, was also called the Book of the Watchers. So uh, another one was called... Uh, I don't... Man, you know what? There's so many different ones. It's five different compositions put together. Those five different compositions later became known as as, as the Book of Enoch. So... Uh, This wasn't known in 1773 when James Bruce in Ethiopia Ethiopia found the first uh, uh, Ethiopic version of the Book of Enoch. This wasn't known then, but it was known when the Book of Enoch was found among the Dead Sea Scrolls. Because among the Dead Sea Scrolls, a lot of the scrolls had notations from what are called colophons. Those colophons allow us to know when texts have been merged or when one text ends and another begins. So uh, yeah, the Book of Enoch uh tells about Enoch's uh traditions and history, and so we have we have a we have a situation where three thousand years ago there were the Anunnaki. I'm not talking about Anunnaki. The Anunnaki came very late. All right, well, I'm talking about original. The original poor Sumerian writings are about the Anuna and the Anuna were benefactors to humanity. They were providing infrastructure. They had the maze, these technological tablet devices that allowed them to do all kinds of things. The The Sumerians were also kind of petty, but we have to understand every bit of this history was written after the collapse of an infrastructure. Every bit of the Sumerian texts were written after the fall of their civilization A total infrastructure collapse had happened. And this is why man was very sophisticated and already coming up with ways to to communicate the histories on clay tablets that could be burned and kilned and preserved. Because their technological tablets like these that they used to use no longer worked. So... Two and three hundred years later, these traditions continued, and people knew, oh, okay, if you want to preserve knowledge, you got to do it on a tablet. So, listen, the association sounds ridiculous, but we have a lot of evidence that high technology existed in the ancient world. And our oldest traditions don't even make sense unless we use them from modern frames of reference. So we have the the chief way to record knowledge in the ancient world is one of the hardest ways in the world to do it. Yeah. Making clay and then using a stylus to do complex uh, cuneiform and then putting it in the oven, baking it, and then taking it out and then just holding two or three of them as heavy as hell. There could, we, they could have been using anything but, but clay, but they were stuck in a frame of reference because the forefathers used tablets. Therefore, they had to replicate that in some way. It's all about sympathetic magic. So sympathetic magic requires the use of objects that are supposed to be like the objects of their of their of whatever the focus is so they're trying to preserve knowledge and they do it through cuneiform tablets but it's all in retrospect just like I'm always telling my viewers that every calendar in the ancient world is a is a construct that was designed ex post facto in retrospect no calendars began at a certain date and then counted every year forward. It's, it's not That's not how it happened. It's always survivors of something that are retro-calculating what, what, what happened and giving us an end date. The Mayan civilization did not begin in 3113 BC. We have no evidence of the Maya prior to 900 BC. That civilization was somebody else. But that somebody else, the Olmeca, they had retro-calculated. They had retrofactored the beginning of their calendar. And when the Olmec fell, the Maya took up the torch and continued the countdown of Bactans. But they themselves did, didn't start that calendar, and neither did the Olmeca. So, uh, in answer to your question, Inki was a benefactor. A lot of the uh, other Anuna were kind of neutral or indecisive about their treatment toward humans the reg- regular people. So the Anuna were very, very different, but they were still regarded almost human-like. They just had godlike powers. So Enki uh, Inky, Inky got a bad rap, but that wasn't introduced until cuneiform started. This means after the cataclysm, there was a group, I call them the priesthood, but this group demonized Enki, and they demonized him because... Things he did were totally against the will of the other gods. He didn't do anything against humanity, but the priesthood wasn't there to defend humanity. The ancient Babylonian and Akkadian priesthood was to venerate and obey the gods. So in the oldest traditions, the gods being mad at inky all the time, Enki became demonized as the serpent. He became demonized as the wicked, the trickster. The trickster is the most common way to describe him. And in later civilizations, he became Loki in the far north. He He was the outsider, but he was a god but he was the outsider of the gods. He was the trickster and he was always vilified for something he had done. But when you like Hephaestus who provided mankind fire, Hephaestus was the outsider among the gods. All these pantheons have this outsider who was vilified and turned into the devil, turned into the Satan, the Lucifer, this, this inky person, this Enki Inky, this Inky in the Sumerian records actually provided mankind irrigation, canal works, water works. He gave man life. And humans, humans venerated Inki for this. They knew he was a benefactor. By the time the Jews were in Babylon rewriting all these records that they got through the Babylonian filters that demonized Enki, the the Jews did find some very interesting parallels from older texts. And they realized, wait a minute, we're on to something here because this guy here, he was actually helping mankind. And uh, the creator, the oversoul really loved this guy and took him. And he disappeared into heaven. And what the Jews found was that there are ancient Egyptian traditions, later preserved by the Copts, that talk about a figure named Surid. And Surid had the exact same history as Enki and Enoch. He ruled over 130 gnomes. But the Book of Jasher says that Enoch ruled 130 kings and princes. And they both ruled Egypt. So, uh, but it was an Egypt that was pre-Egyptian, pre-dynastic Egyptian, before all the pyramids. So we have we have the same story. Enki foreknew of the great flood. Enki warned humanity that that they were going to be destroyed. The gods didn't like that at all. But we have in Enoch in the Book of Jasher and in the Book of Jubilees and in the uh, uh, in the Book of Enoch itself. I also believe it's in the second book of Enoch. Well, the secrets of Enoch. We have the story of Enoch seeing visions of, of the coming flood, and he warns humanity in a great council where he brings all the kings and, and regents together and tells them, hey, we need to do something, man. Great flood. We got to preserve knowledges. And the same story is told in many Near Eastern texts where a Great man before the flood gathered all the holy writings of the ancient world and, and embarked on a project. Now, here's where things get interesting. Traditions after the cataclysm talk about the project being an ark. And then they, they because it was a flood, they automatically thought that the great architectural project that was being built was a boat. But it wasn't. An ark is a container, and an ark contains something very, very important, very valuable. The ark that was constructed, according to the Enochian text, is, is, was huge. Wasn't a boat at all. Now, in my own, in my own you know, videos in my published book, Lost Scriptures of Giza, I show that the Book of Enoch is describing the building of an architectural project of stone that, sh- that looks like a mountain. Now, it's a pyramid, but where we get the proof of that is that in the traditions of Surid, of the Egyptian copts, we find that they said that exactly. They said that 300 years before the flood. And remember, in the book of Jasher, Enoch ruled for 300 years. So, but in in the Surid accounts, it says 300 years before the flood, the, the, uh, uh, so got all his best architects and, and all his best wise men together, and they built the Great Pyramid, and they pre- and they preserved inside of it all the knowledges of the world for a future civilization. This is all in traditions. Yeah, I cite them all. I cite them all. I go into detail about citing them because they're, they're fascinating. But here we have the link from Enoch to Enki and from Enki to Sureed, They're all the same person. And then we get the the first Hermes. There was three Hermes. The first Hermes was Enoch. The second, the second Hermes was Abraham. The third Hermes was like the Buddha. But uh, in the Greek traditions, there's three Hermes. Uh, later on in the Hermetic literature, then you have Hermes Trismegistus, or Hermes the Thrice Great, uh, which is a carryover from those traditions. But yeah, it's a... Enki is just Sumerian traditions uh, of this guy, and Enoch is just the Jewish version of those texts.
1: I have a question. Do, do you think we can draw parallels that, that Marduk and Thoth are? Or, okay, here's a couple questions, because I have so much I could ask you about. I want to ask you about the tablets of destinies, which were the Emmys, the pinecone and handbag. I mean, also, I mean, there's just so much. Like, can we say that Marduk and Thoth were Enki's sons, or is that Sitchin's stuff, and then... Uh, where else was I going to go? There's so much I want to ask you, but um, so may- maybe that first, we're, we're, can we say Thoth was Hermes and then was he Enki's son and was also Marduk Enki's son? Well,
0: there's an old text called uh, in Merkar, in the Lord of Arata. Yes. Okay, this ancient text, this series of tablets concerns Genesis chapter 14. Now, Marduk, Marduk is nothing but a Babylonian patron deity name after the fact for an older Akkadian deity called Merodak. Marduk is just the Babylonian version of Merodak. Merodak is the Akkadian uh, version, epithet for the older Sumerian uh, deity called uh, Amar-Udaak. It's, it's A-M-A-R, amar dot uh, udu dot a k it's amar udaak amar amar udaak is the great hunter he's the mighty hunter now this is why why the jews called the mighty hunter nimrod because the old mrd root that's in Amar Uda act that's also in merodach that's also in Marduk is also in Nimrod this is all the exact same person I've written an entire book uh, called "A uh, Mighty Hunter uh, of World Mythology King of the Giants uh, but I wrote a book that's the title of the book it's a it's a PDF I offer in Gumroad for like two or three bucks but uh I had done. It's like it has like 300 different source materials in there. I go into a lot of detail about that that short little 500 year period after the flood. I go into a lot of detail about the annals and histories of Sodom and Gomorrah and Elam and and what was happening in in the Book of Genesis in the Old Testament 500 years after the flood. How he was the Gilgamesh of the old world, uh, Sargon of Akkad. But yeah. In, in Near Eastern text, they're the same individual, also called Martu. And 900 years later, in the Mediterranean area, the Greeks called him Ares. He's the same god. Uh, this is the, a bloodthirsty god of war that always dominated the battlefield. And uh, in, uh, in also in uh, the book of Jasher, he is called Mardon. Uh, This same root. It's the same root that's in Nimrod, Merodach, Marduk, and Amarudak. It's the exact same one. It's the same individual. Uh, This is what's. This is what's just really weird. For that period of history, where we have all these different titles and names for the exact same individual, this is what's so bizarre. Academia looks back at this period. Uh, 500 years after the flood, academia looks back at this period, and they see 30 different timelines and all these uh, events unfolding, and they see it as chaotic and random, and they publish all these books, and they and they stick to these individual epithets. But when you start identifying all the different epithets that are involving the same individual, the more you research Near Eastern Antiquity, it's all one story, and it's linear. This is what I I documented in Chronicon. My Chronicon goes into this, and and it breaks all this down and and takes away all the noise, because that's what it is. Listen, the reason I'm telling you this is because there's nothing nothing that is possible about the tower of babel story and yet it's one of the greatest stories of the ancient world when the when the languages were divided by gods that had a conversation looking down on humanity and they felt threatened and they said you know what the man has become as as one of us and there is nothing that by virtue of imagination he will not be able to accomplish mankind working together On an architectural project for some reason threatened the the overseers so they split up all the languages now in in our reality this could have never happened but if we agree that history is programming and that it is simulated then all it is is a slight change of coding to produce 70 different dialects from one single narrative and that same mix-up would also translate to the past meaning if there was manipulation in our timeline from outside the construct and it did in our view we think that it only applied to that one single event but when we look at the archaeological record, we have all hundreds of thousands of tablets that name all these individuals, but call them 20 and 30 names each. And we're automatically assuming this is all stories that are the same stories being told, by, but it's a different name every time. No, that's not what happened. What happened is somebody outside the construct interfered with the coding, but something unforeseen happened, or maybe it was known it was going to happen but it changed the historical narratives as well whatever they entered to to create 70 languages created those languages in retrospect as well. It's almost as if it re- rewrote all history before that, now separating all the histories, making it and instead of a single linear confluence of historical events, it's multiple different timelines that now have to be dissected. And people like Jason of Archaic sound crazy when they try to tell you that it was all one historically historical timeline. Because when we study history, it looks like a whole bunch of different timelines. And it's, it's very hard to separate fact from 50 beyond that threshold when in our history books it is claimed that mankind spoke one language and then one hour later when the gods got pissed now all of a sudden we spoke 70 different languages and we had to migrate to different areas of the world because we couldn't get along anymore
1: you know what in the in the tale of Adapa it says about Adapa it says he was the wisest of the Anunnaki so that's kind of saying there that if, if that's if that's right that whoever created adapa was was pissed that they created him as as an equal right Or yeah, yeah but but uh the tale of adapa i believe
0: that's uh contemporary with the tale of etana cuz Itana etana Itana was just like if etana was just like enki he was just like a sumerian version of enoch and so was demuzi um there were two demuzis in in the sumerian king list so just like in the biblical narrative, uh, there are two Enochs. So yeah, there's so, so we have the we have this it's it's almost as if the Tower of Babel did happen. No, it's not possible, but that's from a materialist standpoint. If we're living suspended within a holosphere of pure programming, then it would have been an easy thing to introduce programming that got the participants on the inside of the construct to no longer be able to communicate and this is why linguists are so fascinated by the correlates and parallels between all the different oldest languages in the world so they create these vast tables and computerized printouts showing how this language came from this one and this one came from this one and this one came from this one when, when it really looks like they were all in all created at the exact same time from a parent source that is no longer in, in in the coding the parent source has been erased so and that, that would be very easy to do from people on the outside of the construct who had control of all the protocols It'd be very easy to do if it's easy for you to create 70 different language out of out of, out of one parent language and this is what the historical record tells us happened and then we see this massive amount of confusion all through these texts. Do you know that in the car tablets, the main theme of the car tablets is that the king of Elam is steadily dispatching envoys to Babylon. And they're coming back talking about, we can't understand anything they're saying. It was a massive communication barrier that had never been experienced before. They, the king of Edom was convinced it started a war, and that war is recorded in Genesis chapter 14. So this uh everything starts making sense when you when when uh when you start associating all the different titles and epithets with who they belong to, because there were well, there weren't as many cities in the old world as you think, and there weren't as many participants in the historical narrative as you think. What happened? was that somehow the same individual all of a sudden accrued 20 different names. It's the same thing we find with the pharaonic dynasties. This is why so many pharaohs had so many different titles and names and why later Egyptians and Greeks who were trying to put together a chronological record of ancient Egypt, they got it so wrong because they stacked all these titles and names and then people reading their material three and 400 years later automatically assumed that because these names are all here, must be different rulers and if different ruler if they went by the factor of 40 the generation then that means egyptian history started 4000 bc which is absolute bs they just counted they just counted all the names this is the problem with manatho Manath- manatho's version of history the real problem is is 26 dynasties of egypt were over before anybody decided to put together an egyptian chronology and when he did he was a greek egyptian in alexandria that's all wrong it's like it's like waiting it's like waiting till today 2022 to write the very first published authorita- authoritative version of the war between the states, the Civil War. Doesn't that sound ridiculous? Assuming, yeah. that not, assuming that not a single book has ever been published about the Civil War, the war between the states, all of a sudden in the year 2022, we're going to write an authoritative uh, deal. We have nothing to cite. We have no sources to cite. No. All we have is what our daddies told us, what their daddies told them, what their mamas and grandmas told them about it. So here it is, way after the Civil War. You know, it's 140, 150, 160, 70 years after the Civil War, and now we're going to write an author. Uh, we're going to write a compendium all about those those five years. It's ridiculous. But this is what scholars want us to believe about Egyptian chronology.
1: Yeah. I now I, I you brought up the flood and I was and I know the Phoenix phenomenon from listening to you happened before that, but like where does this Phoenix phenomenon first start showing up? And then um and if for the my fans that might not be familiar with the Phoenix phenomenon, could you give like a small breakdown of it? And then also like was that where the flood was? Like was that was that the flood of Phoenix phenomenon?
0: Okay, yes, yes, the, the Great Flood was the Phoenix phenomenon, but it was more than that. The the Great Flood is a syllabus story. This is where people get confused. And look, I love my Christian brothers and sisters. I was raised among them. I got no problems with them, but they they just don't understand. They are so they bring this baggage into the archaic research and fan that doesn't belong. Listen, the entire world suffered flooding. Because the vapor canopy collapsed. This is why a Genesis, the rainbow appears. This is why the lunar calendar was almost forgotten. The matriarchy lost its power. The sun appeared in the sky for the first time and when it did this is why the Sun calendars began this is the old Sun ages this is when the the Phoenix period began to be recorded the great Phoenix epics of 552 years so this was when the ancient American calendar started the, The like the Aztec calendar stone every this event the day the sky fell started everything but when the vapor canopy fell flooding occurred everywhere but the whole world did not flood you understand this is yeah. where this is the problem. the The Jews, when they wrote this material, they borrowed heavily from the Zoroastrian and the Babylonian versions of the Amorites, which also taught that the whole world flood, flooded. But it did, and, and the Atrahasis, right? The Atrahasis says that it, it was yeah, a flood. Atrahasis, yes, the Atrahasis. I call it Atrahasis, but yeah, the Atrahasis epic talks about the whole world flooded. But it's not true. It's not true. There's too many survivors of different ethnicities, different cultures all around the world that survived and also remembered the great flood. So what the, re- the, the reason this got super popular that the whole world flooded is because the Straits of Gibraltar known anciently as the Pillars of Hercules broke in that same year by an earthquake. 2239 B.C., all of Spain and North Africa shook because the North African plate sank. When it sank about 200 feet, the Sphinx the Valley Temple, the Sphinx Temple, the entire Egyptian Delta, and everything all the way to Abydos went underwater. The Mediterranean flooded in and when it did, the earthquake broke the pillars of Hercules that stopped the Atlantic from coming in. Now the Atlantic came in and the tidal wave drowned over 300 stone cities and archeologists admit those cities are are under the Mediterranean. Where the great destruction of Malta, Gigantia, the hypogium, the these massive temples on Malta were vapor canopy structures, and uh, it's evident that a single tidal wave traveling from the east, going, I'm uh, traveling from the west, going east, completely obliterated Malta. 20 and 40 ton blocks were moved by the water. And archaeologists have photographed them, shown them on the ocean floor. One single wave did all this damage. So the civilization on Malta was destroyed. But at that time, the Great Pyramid sank. And when it did, it left two white, two very highly polished looking mountains that were surrounded by water. And this is 2239 B.C the the subsidence was the entire north african plate it was low it was low and many ancient writers talk about the ocean that was the sahara desert that it was it wasn't in super ancient times especially in the writings of scrabble and diodorus siculus we find all kinds of references to to this inner sea that was the sahara desert so for for centuries traditions were now being spread all around the world about the two the two great mountains that were inaccessible they were surrounded by water They're, these were the great mountains of the deep these are the holy mountains of god and man even in the celtic traditions they were called kair and these uh oh uh, they were associated to 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 seven builders so this uh uh That It stayed there for about 340 years until 1899 BC, which is the Tower of Babel story. Now, all that happened was another earthquake. When that earthquake occurred, the entire North African plate just popped back into place. Now, when we're talking about land masses, the size of the North African plate you would not be able to see with the naked eye on a map any change it's just a slight elevation but that slight elevation brought the great pyramids back up but now we have a problem the temple of the temple of the sphinx and the temple the valley temple are completely buried Seashells are all over the place. Now a great desert is here. It's never been there before. There was no deserts in the vapor canopy world. Now all of a sudden there's this vast desert where the the water has drained off. Seashells. Ancient historians mention all the time about boats and ships that were found far inland in Africa. We also have uh, uh, Frederick Norton Lewis, who surveyed in the in the was it, 18th century in the 1700s. He surveyed the area, and the first thing he remarked about was all the seashells that were in the area. This is before Napoleon's exca- uh, excavated the entire area. The Sphinx took a lot of damage not the pyramids because the pyramids were covered in 100 inch thick casing blocks and being underwater did not affect them at all. But the Sphinx took some damage because it is is limestone. It's a natural outcrop that's been carved into this great statue. Now, I don't know When they changed the head of the Sphinx, but anybody can Google an aerial photograph of the Sphinx and you will look at it and understand that the head that's on the Sphinx today is not the original head. It can't be because the body is vastly disproportionately large to the tiny little head. So I believe the same thing the ancient Aztecs believed. In that the Aztecs have a tradition that somewhere in a land far away, at the head, at the head of nine bows, which were nine rivers, at the head of these nine bows was a holy mountain guarded by a great dog. I believe the same thing the Aztecs did. That's Anubis. That is that was the Sphinx was originally a giant dog, which introduces A a very profound symbol in the ancient world because the origin of humans is equally as mysterious as the origin of domesticated dogs and domesticated animals. If the, if, if, if the theory of evolution, natural selection, uniformitarian ideas are correct, then there should be no domesticated animals. They would have never been able to survive. Not, 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 by, the, not by the models that have been given us today. There are creatures today that are alive in this world that should have never survived in, in a hostile environment, predator versus prey environment. We have domesticated dogs. We are told are the descendants of wolves, but they're not. They're not. They are Completely different. And there's there's Ivar Zapp and there's other researchers that have gone into great detail showing that there were genetic modifications to humans that created different races, just like the epicanthic fold on the oriental, which is a cosmetic piece of genetics. It doesn't belong on the human body. It does make the oriental eye very almond. But over a hundred years ago, scholars were arguing about how the hell in the evolutionary model could the epicanthic fold have ever developed? Same thing as the duck Bill Platypus and many other creatures that just don't make sense. The theory is wrong. So dogs themselves uh, uh, seem to appear in the archaeological record contemporary with humans. There doesn't seem to be a distinction. The dog as a statue is a symbol of domestication, but we're not... We're not led to believe through the traditions that they were talking about domesticating dogs. We're talking about the origin of human races and what was really happening. This is the, uh, this is the type of information that Zechariah Sitchin probably got right about different, different rulers during the vapor canopy. They didn't have to argue about who belonged to who because a person's ethnicity automatically showed basically where they belonged and who, and and because that's what was going on. There were different areas of the world where different ethnicities were, were pocketed and they were, they were used for labor and mining and to build infrastructures. And yeah, the vapor canopy world, the pre-flood world was very different, but it's uh, the origin. I mean, I I could call them slaves because slavery, but, but we have this idea in the Akkadian records that it, was, it wasn't regarded as slavery. It was regarded as we are a bunch of people and we, we need to be fed, we need to be clothed, we need to do all this. And these Anunna provided all kinds of sophisticated ways for that to happen and the people commiserated. And basically, it wasn't a, it wasn't a worship, not as the Anuna. That came later as the Anunnaki Huge difference between Anuna and Anunnaki. And that difference is chronological. We're talking Th- about. That's
1: an- what I want to get into. I I, I I still wanted to ask you about one more thing, but because we've been going about an hour, I don't want to take up a lot of your time. I think this was really awesome. You did this and you, your your research is so amazing, man. Like, thank you so much for doing this, but like just to to, to to finalize everything. And I love talking Anunnaki with you. I could, I could listen to you all day. This is amazing. But what was the difference between the Anuna and the Anunnaki? Was it two different sets of uh, beings? Or how, what is it that is it not that simple or what, what? Okay, check this
0: out. The best way I can clarify this for people is that in reality, the Anuna and the Anunnaki are no different. There is no distinction, distinctions, But the Anunnaki are the descriptions of the older Anunna almost a thousand years later by a people who wanted to demonize them. Anunnaki derives from the Akkadian and Babylonian. In the sumerian they are anuna in the sumerian they are benefactors in the sumerian they are not demonized in the sumerian they bring culture and cereals and domestication and they bring a wealth of information from the land of dilman where they where they used as a jump point because their own their own civilization had had been destroyed. So in fleets, in fleets, in ships, they arrive by way of Dilman to the Near East, and and they arrive as benefactors, not conquerors. Now, after the cataclysm. You have to understand the priesthood going through all these old Akkadian stories and traditions, the priesthood needed to bring the people under their fold and they needed to, to use whatever they could as a tool to induce fear, to get people to venerate the priesthood. The priests wanted to put themselves as intercessors, but what good is an intercessor if the gods you believe in are actually beneficial to you? there's no need for an intercessor so the anunnaki were all of a sudden painted as as plague bringers as demoniacs as nightmares as things you need to fear and to worry about and uh, 200 years of this got the entire population running to the priests weekly on the sabbaticals remember sabbath is not hebrew it is not jewish all the ancient cuneiform texts reveal that the Sabbath was holy way before Jews or Hebrews ever entered the historical record. So the Sabbath comes straight out of Babylon. And these are easy. It's easily verifiable. Anybody could Google Sabbath in cuneiform texts, but the, the, the Sabbath was holy. It's when everybody got together, they went to the temple and a lot of temples, when they showed up at the temple, there was real pretty young priestess for the males and, she held out, she held out a fruit. In Babylon, a lot of times that fruit was an apple. Now when she, when she did that, if a, if a male entered the temple, the sacral prostitution, if a male enter, entering the temple took an apple out of the hand of one of the priestesses, she followed him to a bedchamber. and in the temple they had carnal knowledge. and he paid a heavy tax. He paid a tax for for enjoying the priestess, who gave him the apple, and then a priest gave gave him a blessing, and all that. And it was never known which priestesses got got pregnant by who. But this is how acolytes and this is how eunuchs were introduced into the society. So this this was this was a self perpetuating society, and. It went on for centuries, but the practices gave birth to origin, the different types of origin stories. When the Jews went to Babylon in captivity, they were amazed to see how the common people willingly gave up their money, their goats, their their wheels of cheese, their fine pottery, and every Sabbath went to the pre-temples in Babylon and filled different chambers that were dedicated to different gods. There's a plague god named Puzazu. You could go in there and you could give a you could give a really fine it took you 2 days to make this elaborate amphora and you go take it and you offer it in the chamber of Puzazu. And if you did, the priests of Puzazu would bless you so that Puzazu, who was the demon over plagues, would cure you or whoever your wife or daughter, whoever had the sickness. So there was chambers dedicated to all these different deities and demons. And uh, this went on for centuries. And when the Jews came into contact with this type of commerce, they copied it they copied every single bit of it they saw a way to to have a temple and to keep that temple full of wealth and and but they couldn't just copy the system they had to have a narrative which we call the scriptures that people could buy into that would justify the fear of a god this is all, man, this is all, hey, this isn't Jason making this up. There are many, many greater minds than I that put a bunch of these pieces together. All I, all I, all I bring to the table is an ability to remember all the details from all my thousands of handwritten notes from all these different books that I have written and released on YouTube.
1: I got I got, a, I got a question. I bet you nobody's ever asked you this, but because you're a chronologist, I have to ask it. and I swear this is my last question, but I feel like since I have you here, I got to ask you this question, you and this is to, a good you one. You don't need to feel rushed. I'm not trying to run anywhere. Oh, well, I, I just wanted to ask you about Alexander the Great, because I know you're a chronologist, and, like, I'm, I have a—I I love— you know, I'm part Lebanese and Greek. You know, so like I love that history. You know, I love the history of the Phoenicians. I love the history of Alexander the Great. What I wanted to ask you about is: is the record of Alexander correct? Is it, are we told the, the truth about his life? Because it seems like he had the he was one of the best gen, battle generals of all time. I mean, he 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 did things that were not knowable back then. But we don't know. You know, it's a lot, we hear that a lot of history is like. Um, to bring it into our reality, we hear that a lot of history is like is, is falsified, right? So we don't know what's true or not. So that's why I want to ask you, like, from what you've read from older sources, is the tale of Alexander true? Is he still there?
0: Okay, my audio's still good. Yeah, you're good. All right um alexander alexander of macedon was definitely an anomaly now there are fictitious materials introduced into the text such as uh it is widely known that the account that alexander was at tyre and when he took down the great phoenician city of tyre which the entire world was shocked they never would have imagined anybody could take that take that city so Oh, uh, I don't know if you, you're aware of this, but he built a he had a, he had his army build a pontoon bridge that went all the way out to the island. So
1: it's amazing, so, right?
0: Yeah, it's amazing. So but Greek engineering at the time was the apex of the ancient world. So nothing was amazing. I mean, <clears throat> they were building towers, they were building lighthouses with with mirror systems that could use sunlight to burn ships. I know you heard about that story off the Alexandrian coast. So uh Yes, most of the story of Alexander of Macedon, yeah, that's absolutely true. Uh, there, are, there are many different ancient, ancient writers that they give up the, the story, but there's been embellishments. Some of those embellishment, embellishments are like the, uh, that he took a secret trip by night to Jerusalem and talked to, talk to the, to the uh, priests and all that. Listen, they are famous for injecting themselves into historical narratives for which they never belonged. This is another example. And, uh, uh, they, yeah, it's, uh, it's really ridiculous, but it's, what's, what's interesting is that he became the king of Babylon in 331 BC. 331 BC is perfectly on the Nemesis X chronology, which is a whole separate, it has nothing to do with the Phoenix phenomenon. The Nemesis X chronology has everything to do with the Anuna, the whole Anunnaki narrative, the Nemesis cataclysm, but, uh. These major events on the Anuna timeline of the Nemesis X object—they have—they have—it happens to be world depopulations and great, real weird aerial phenomena. And there was in 331 BC, there were strange things seen in the skies, and I document well, uh, those in my, in, in my videos and in my in my published books. It's a uh, there's a lot of weird, a lot, a lot of high weirdness back then, but uh, then again, uh. It could be, I mean, it could be all about be frames of reference, but they saw something strange in the sky for sure. And flames did fall from the sky to the ground. But what it was, we just don't know. But it is, but it is the year of, of the, 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 uh, the Nemesis X object.
1: So, I wanted to ask you about the Nemesis X, but I, I wanted to ask you something real quick. Did you ever hear the story that, that supposedly Alexander went to Babylon to take the hand of Marduk? But he when he got there, Marduk wasn't there.
0: I've I've never heard that story, but uh, I, I was more interested in Callisthenes because Callisthenes was was uh, Alexander's buddy, and he ended up killing Callisthenes, so they couldn't have been too much buddies. But Callisthenes was really intelligent. Alexander took him everywhere; they, they were raised together, went to school together. But Callisthenes realized really quick that the hundreds of thousands of of chars, days, in the, in the Babylonian records uh, were exactly days. Callisthenes knew this. When he factored in the origin of Babylon, he was within six years after the great flood. Now, he could have never come up with that date, 1903 years before uh, Alexander of Masonon's death. He could have never derived that date by looking at the the Chaldean records, unless he abbreviated those hundreds of thousands of units that Zechariah Sitchin says is years, unless he would have abbreviated them by lunations. The same thing I've been telling people on my own channel. That it's the moon count system. This is why all those all those ancient records have hundreds of thousands of units. So, Callisthenes, 2,300 years ago, knew this, just like Eudoxus did, just like Diodorus Siculus did. This is why I have little patience for anybody trying to push Graham Hancock on me. I, I have little patience for Sitchinites who come to my channel and get triggered when... They might be good people, but your lack of education is has totally, completely corrupted your frames of reference. So, yeah,
1: yeah I think you have to be open minded about this stuff, right? I mean, like we don't—it's—it's it's hard to track down our real history, and when there's someone like you who's really trying to provide our real history, I'm—I'm—I'm I'm, I'm ears wide open for that kind of stuff, you know. Um, and I really appreciate it. I think what you're doing is amazing. But if you could just real quickly. So what's the difference between the Nemesis X and the Phoenix? Like is Nemesis X Nibiru or what? I'm sorry. I'm a little bit behind on this. That's kind of stuff. Okay.
0: Oh, there's a book from 1901 called the uh, magicians and sorcerers of Nineveh and Babylon. And I show pictures pictures of of this book uh, on my channel in two or three different videos because I wanted people to understand that even though I'm a Sitchin critic, Zechariah Sitchin did not make up Nibiru. He did not invent Nibiru. Many of his critics claim that he made it up. So I cite this and I show this on my channel that scholars in 1897 and 98, according to this book published in 1901... Specifically argued with each other over the identity of Nibiru. One group of academia at that time were, were translators. They were saying, "Listen, this is probably just another name for Jupiter, a gigantic body. It appears, it appears in the sky, and, uh, and, and does all kinds of evil and stuff." But listen. There was another group of scholars that says, listen, we already have the, the name syllabaries for every planet in the, in the Babylonian planosphere. We have all those. This is not Jupiter. It's not even described as Jupiter. It even says it goes another way, meaning meaning it didn't it did not follow the path of the thrones. The thrones are the wandering stars that stay on the ecliptic. The moon, the sun, the planets, they're all on the ecliptic. Whatever this was, it did not follow the path of the thrones. It did something else. That's a dead clue that it's not Jupiter. So these scholars were right that, hey, man, whatever this Nibiru is, is different. And then they cite all the different verses where Nibiru appears in different cuneiform texts. It's not Jupiter. Whatever this thing is that appears in the sky, it affects battles. It affects cattle. It affects different phenomena in our world. And what's interesting is that it's not always bad. Even in the Babylonian Omen text, it talks about Nibiru appearing and a golden age will happen. I find that really interesting because the nemesis X object, which is Nibiru, the nemesis X object, its last appearance in the whole archaic chronology is 2106 A.D., And in 2106 AD, that is the final time. It appears in 2046. But every time it appears, it's here around our world for 60 years. This is why the 60-year period was venerated in Sumer, Akid, uh, Mohenjo-Daro, Harappa, the Chinese, the, uh, the Koreans, everybody in the ancient world remembered the 60-year period and associated it to the gods. And in my Chronicon, I show each one of these 60-year periods where the nemesis X object was at what's called perihelion. Perihelion means it's right here in the inner system with us. Aphelion is the 732 years that it's away from us far away. But the 60 years of Perihelion very interesting things throughout world history have happened. And the last 60 year Perihelion starts in 2046 and it ends in 2106 which happens to be the year of the return of the chief cornerstone. It is the end of the Great Pyramid timeline. It's the 6000th year of the Anasmundi Mundi chronology which began in 3895 BC with a new heavens and new earth which isn't the beginning of the world it was a pole shift that was so destroyed that the survivors thought they were
1: living in a totally different new heavens and new world. Wow, that's so this is so fascinating. This is this is all so fascinating. So and so the last thing the, 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 the Phoenix phenomenon that's completely different. That comes every 138 years, and that kind of picks and chooses from what I've heard you say. It it you can even pick and choose people from a certain frequency, correct? Okay, that's not the Nemesis
0: X object. Nemesis X object, I don't believe it's frequency based. I don't believe it's the phoenix. The phoenix phenomenon, the phoenix phenomenon at first in the Gnostic text, the phoenix was very destructive. It's called specifically the bringer of destruction. That's the name of the phoenix in in, in the Nag Hammadi Library on the origin of the world text yeah i, sh- I show I, sh- I cite it several times and show show the actual quote and all yeah in the gnostic records the phoenix is named it said it calls it the bringer of destruction and it was a testimony against the archons now i have a theory and i have an entire playlist requires requires me to do an entire playlist in a published book to itemize that theory and show all the evidence for it. but i have a theory that the original design of the Phoenix was hijacked and that a benefactor altered its protocols, it altered its programming and allowed for an escape, meaning it couldn't stop the 138-year periodicity, could not stop it from discriminating which civilizations and which times it was going to unleash its destructive power. But it did, it did, do did something to it to either make it make certain individuals invisible to it or ignore those individuals at all and that requires a frequency-based technology and uh this is where we have many stories from the ancient world that now now make sense like uh The exit, like like the, uh, the Egyptian plague story, it now takes on a whole new meaning when we hear about the Hebraicized version of where they took lamb's blood and they put it on their door mantles. Because those who obeyed the dictate were ignored by the angel of death that was in the sky, killing everybody else. Okay. I believe that's a frame of reference. I don't believe anybody took lamb's blood and and put it up. I don't believe there would have been enough lambs in Egypt to have done that. So not at one time without killing them all. So what happened really was there were a people who knew the destruction was coming and they did not fear it. And by not fearing it, they were ignored by it. And everybody else was in that fear based modality and they got it. Not all of them, but a bunch of them. But this same phenomenon appears again. Jake, J- Jacob's sons and their families and retainers are fighting the Canaanites. And they know this phenomenon is coming. And all of a sudden, we find it in the book of Jasher, the sun darkens. Great earthquakes occurred. Stones fell from the sky and destroyed seven Canaanite armies. But the Israelites were not touched. So we have it again with the invasion of the De Danan. Here's the De Danan. Again, the Tuatha Dé Danann invade, take back take back Ireland from the furbogs. Fir, the Tuatha Dé Danann were originally from Ireland. They left for centuries. They came back and they find the furbogs have taken over. They fight the furbogs and lose. They come back and perfectly time the Second Battle of Moitura. When they time the Second Battle of Moitura, the sun darkened, massive earthquakes happened. And then... The firbolgs are terrified, and this phenomenon airs them out. And the De Dainian run on shore, take over, defeat the firbolgs. And this is the story we have, many incidents, many different traditions, where one group of people are working with nature, and another group of people are terrified to death of what's happening, and they suffer the consequences
1: wow this is fat this was fat this is so fascinating this is amazing stuff man i'm on the edge of my seat i don't have any other questions for you um th- thank you again this is uh, this is seriously amazing man. you're amazing and if you could tell everybody your website your youtube and your book or where to find your books and all that and just from the bottom of my heart thank you again this was amazing well hey man oh uh, we'll do it again
0: sometime i appreciate you uh letting me vent for a while that's so uh, i didn't want to i didn't feel like doing the video today i'm actually I'm actually reading this book. It's uh, from 1885 prehistoric world vanished races. I'm actually oh, cool. reading. It. Yeah, it's an old book. It's uh it's original. Taking care of it, but I'm actually reading this book. I'm finding so many gold mines. I will end up. I will end up doing one or two videos. Uh, these will be long videos uh, on my channel of this book. But right now, that's what I'm doing. I'm just. I've been relaxing today, and uh. But it, my, my my everything for me is easy. I mean. Either Archaics YouTube, anybody can find me, or Archaics.com. All my all my links are there. You can find everything there. Yeah, I just yeah. yeah. And everybody in the
1: chat was really cool. Like I, I didn't see any haters or anything like that. So I mean, everybody's really intelligent in the chat. Like that's a, a lot of good. You have a lot of good fans, but I do too. They they're really smart people. I always say that they uh they know their stuff. Yeah, you know? good. There's some good people in there. All right, Jason. Well, have a good night. And thank you, everybody. And thank you, Jason. And everybody have a good night and have a good holiday. All right. Bye-bye. All right. Have a good night.